Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. All right, let's stand, if you would, please. We'll go ahead and read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. We'll read the entire chapter, and then we'll hone in on verses 5 through 8. Verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down, and worshipped him that liveth, forever and ever. Thank you. You may be seated. I'll begin just briefly by saying this and we'll end considering the Lord's praise as we prepare to go into the final segment of this chapter, Lord willing, next week. But uh, if we're not accustomed to speaking good things about the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven's going to be a difficult adjustment for us. If praising the Lord, and I'm not talking about putting some generic words in our mouth that we don't sincerely believe in our heart, but if praising God is not something that we are accustomed to do, meaning singing some of the songs we sing, a lot of songs tonight geared around the first that song number 10, I will praise Him. That is a decision we make. I'm going to speak up the good things about the Lord. I believe this. Praising the Lord is a decision of faith, just like believing on Him for salvation is a decision of faith. You're going to have to decide, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to be attentive, conscious, and aware of the good character of God. I'm going to learn it by faith, and I'm going to declare it by faith. Praise is one of those things that when we decide to do it, we find joy in it. 
Amen? And it's something that must be part of our life, starting in our prayer closet. We'll never sing praises in the pew at church sincerely from the heart unless we're doing it in our prayer closet at home. Amen? And many times when we're singing in church, and I, don't, I mean unkindness by this, but many times we're repeating the praise of someone else that's not our own. It's not what we sincerely think or believe about the Lord. When it is your own, and you open that songbook and you find someone expressing, man, they're using words, if I only knew how to come up with them on my own, that's what I would say. And then we'll do that. How many of you find this? Praising men is easier than praising the Lord. You go to a, a company meeting and somebody has done an ex excellent job and the, the management stands and says, these are all the accolades around this person and Next thing you know, uh, somebody else says, yeah, boy, that's true about him or her. Boy, they are quite a worker. And many times we have an easier time praising our fellow man than we do praising our God. This is a chapter, as is chapter 4, that is praise to the Lord. Uh, what we have here, if we'll have the faith to see it, is we're getting a glimpse into heaven. This is a portrait of what it looks like around the throne. We're getting a picture of what's going on there. And what brings us there is we already believe he's the lamb that was slain. We see the symbolism of Christ as the lamb through the scripture. We understand he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of Jesse. If you have your doctrine straight, you know he came out of the tribe of Judah through the family of David to be the lamb that was slain, the picture painted throughout the entire Old Testament of the price for salvation all the way from Genesis 3 all the way up until John the Baptist preached and said, Behold the lamb of God. We understand who is being spoken of here. And if you've put your trust in him, something about this text ought to ignite your soul. If it doesn't, then we need to do some checking up and say, what's wrong with me spiritually that this picture of the one who died for me forgave my sin? I wish we tonight could get a hold of what we don't have to dread because Christ is our Savior. So we begin tonight by just saying, this is going to end with talking about praise, but... Uh, we'll end with saying some about that as well but uh, all this perfect picture and understanding of who Christ is results if you would in lack, for lack of a better word in an explosion of genuine sincere heartfelt praise for the Lord Jesus Christ it seems to me the Apostle John felt very at home as he wrote these pages he, he understood who he was looking at and for you and I, I believe a mark of spiritual maturity is the ability to genuinely praise the Lord. Now, again, not some kind of a feigned repetition of words. We're not talking about that. God doesn't want vain repetition. But sincere, a sincere testimony of who the Lord is. I was talking to a very dear friend of mine on the phone this week. He called, and I called and missed him, and he called back. We're talking, and in the process of the conversation, we end up both, and he is my senior by a lot of years, but... In the conversation, we both ended up giving our testimony both of salvation and of when the Lord really held us accountable to if you believe this, why are you living like you're living? For him, he was about 50, he told me, when that somebody challenged him. He said it was a lost co-worker who was having trouble in his life and had to ask him, are you a Christian? Because he had no idea. He was living in such sinful ways. The guy had said, do you, believe, do you believe that Jesus is legitimately what the Bible says? And he said, I had to tell him. I, I, he said, but it, no one in my life had ever asked me that since he had accepted the Lord as his Savior as a youngster in, in a church. Uh, no one had ever asked him. He said, I'd never been confronted with whether or not I actually believed on Christ or not. 
And they said when this lost co-worker, not a saved person, trying to witness to him, a lost co-worker asked him, are you a believer? He said, I had to answer with honesty. He said, and the fact that I had to be honest troubled me. And he said, I had to honestly say, I do believe it. And I do believe on him. He said, and the next question was, then why in the world am I living the way I'm living if I actually believe this is true? So what does this have to do with our text tonight? Well, if we actually believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins, and it's not just, you know, I'm glad I'm not going to hell so I can live a fun life. But rather, if it weren't for Christ, I'd be an absolute condemnation before a holy God who is living and real, and I'm going to meet him in a moment of time. Then we can, by faith, get a glimpse of who we're looking at here and join, get ourselves ready for glory by getting used to understanding that the one on the throne is worthy of everything they say he's worthy of. Amen? You know why we serve the Lord? You know why we're willing to change the way we, the way we speak, change our attitude, change our thoughts, change the way we treat people? Because worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and strength and power. Do you know why people are willing to get, take their education and invest it in what matters to Christ rather than what matters to them? Because they know he's worthy. I want to tell you, the entire Christian life hinges on having the belief that these elders had who are around the throne, that the lamb is worthy. Amen? You know what? We've, we often feel a career is worthy. We often feel our peers are worthy. I'm preaching my message before I ever even get to it tonight. Do we really believe Jesus Christ is worthy of 100% of our lives? Now, imagine, how many of us believe we were worthy of 100% of his? No way. But we ought to know, every person in this room tonight ought to know, there is no living excuse for not serving Jesus Christ with 150%. Amen. Being a sold-out Christian has nothing to do with being in full-time service. So I'm talking about full-time vocational service. Some of us, all we do is ministry for our living. It's what God's called us to do. That has nothing to do with full-time being a full-time Christian. It has to do with believing what we're reading in Revelation chapter 5. Amen. So may God give us the eye of faith to see tonight. What we're going to focus on tonight is our worthy sovereign, verses 5 through 8. Let's point out a few things that the scripture takes time to point out about him. Beginning in verse 5, we are reminded of his pedigree. Verse 5 uh, it says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. So remember from last time, John is weeping. This book is found that has seven seals. And, and heaven is scoured for a man worthy to open the book. And earth is scoured for a man worthy to open the book. And uh, under the earth, those in the past, those that have died, and is the, all of God's creation is looked over for any one person that has the credentials to open God's book of governance and implement that, and it, none can be found. And it breaks John's heart as it ought the human condition ought to break our hearts. Amen? You know, there ought to be a point. May I say this? Pride is one of the most foolish sins in the world because it is 100% based on deceit. To be impressed with ourselves means I don't see myself in a true light. I, something, if I have pride, and every one of us, in our Bible Institute, we just wrapped up this last semester, last night, in the last two lessons that Dad taught were on pride. Oh, how helpful, needful it is to be reminded of how deadly pride is. But one of the things about pride is it's based in self-deceit. And, uh, and if we could see things correctly, we'd be like John, weeping, not exalting ourselves. When John realized there's not one person 
worthy of God's criteria. It's a reminder that all have sinned and come short. And if that was the end of the chapter, that would leave us all depressed. But someone says to John, hey, hey, don't weep. There's somebody that has been found and is worthy. You would have thought John would remember that, wouldn't you? But John's so caught up in what he's seeing that there's no one worthy to open this book. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, to John, Weep not, behold, capital, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. Now let's just double back in Scripture and remind ourselves tonight of why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Go back as we went to Last week, Genesis chapter 49, if you would. Genesis chapter 49, the first prophecy concerning the tribe of Judah being the tribe that God would use to raise up uh, the Messiah. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 49. As Jacob is prophesying concerning his sons in the last days, and we read this last week, but we're going to read it again uh, tonight. Genesis 49, beginning... In verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp whom, uh, from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine and his ashes colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Now, if you would, let's go. That, that references the fact that he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, let's consider this reference to him as the, the root of, of Jesse. Um, here again in verse 5, he says, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, rather, hath prevailed. So let's look at a few texts regarding that in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And then we'll say more about why these, these particular prophecies concerning Christ are pointed out at this time. I don't think it takes a whole lot of thought to help us understand why. But Isaiah chapter 11. And verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, verse 2, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Look down, if you would, in the same chapter, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. If you've read your New Testament and believe on Christ, it's not hard to realize who Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10 are talking about. So you have him referred to prophetically in the Old Testament. Here's the root of Jesse, root of David. We know Jesse was David's father. Um, and there's other places referred to as being linked to David or Jesse or both. But the fact of the matter is uh, all of these are dealing with his being in line to be the promised king. Not just a king to rule over Israel, but king of kings and lord of lords. A king to rule all the nations of the earth. God's anointed and appointed king for God's kingdom. Uh, for there to be a kingdom, you have to have a king. Amen? Amen. How many of us have some grasp? Our best understanding of a kingdom 
is watching something like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, we don't understand how a monarchy works because we've been raised in a democracy, a, a democratic republic, whatever you want to say. We have no concept of the authority vested in kings and monarchies even on this earth because those days are behind us. If you study Nebuchadnezzar's image uh, from the time of the golden head, which was a, a, an absolute monarchy, as you move down, you understand the time you get to those ten toes, it's mingled iron and clay, meaning there is a weakened authority structure, which is what we have today. Uh, the, the, the democracies we see of the day, there's a, a mingling of the people and the, the ruling class and so forth, and that's where we're at today is in those toes on that image and in the way that the, the, the governance of our world is taking place. And so we have a hard time understanding the authority of a king and what's vested in him unless you read your Bible. And this is why there's some disturbance today when you have mainstream so-called Christianity having such a flippant view toward Jesus and speaking of him more like he's your second cousin that you enjoy playing hide-and-seek with than the king that you worship and who governs your life. You understand in a monarchy, do you realize who the legislature is? The king. Do you know who the judge is? That would be the king. You know who the executive branch is? All three branches are in one. He legislates, he writes the law, he executes the law, and he adjudicates the law. Meaning he's going to find out if you have violated and hold you accountable. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge because he's the king. There is a, there is a, a there's something terribly wrong with a Christianity that wants to see the Lord Jesus as friend only and not as king. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, presents him to us without any ambiguity as king. And so as he's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me ask you something. If you think of a lion, how many of you uh, like to watch, have you ever, have, am I the only guy that's ever watched something like a, a National Geographic or some, I try to stay away from those folks, but they put together some really neat animal documentaries. And you like to watch the ones on lions. I've watched many documentaries on lions and how they function and how that pride operates and the king of that, that, that pride, that, that ruling lion. I don't know. If you're like me, there is, there is a, a respect and awe, but if you knew you were near one of those guys, fear. The, I used to work for a man, and he, would have his, he bought a piece of property in Rowan County, Tennessee. There was a place called... Um, uh, Tiger Haven, and what they would do is they would rescue these cats, lions and tigers, both bearded lions and Bengal tigers, and they, they became a haven for these large cats. So this piece of property, this farm that my boss bought, was right, I mean, just right across the dirt road from that, that place, and it had big, tall fences and all these things around it, and it's still in existence today. Uh, in fact, I saw a news article about a couple years ago, a young lady working there got an arm bit by a tiger. Uh, fancy that. But they have all these lions and tigers, and when I go work for my boss, we were cleaning up the property. Wintertime didn't have lawn care for us to do, so we'd work on that property. Midday, just before feeding time, they would start roaring. Now, they were within a mile of where I'm working, and I'm going to tell you it would put chills down your spine to hear one of those things roar. There is a respect for that animal, but there's also a level of fear to say, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of that guy, right? It's not an accident that the Lord Jesus is referred to as a lion. 
Now, if you're his friend and he has saved your soul, he is your shepherd. But you know what he is to his foes? He is a lion. And we need to understand tonight, he has the force, the power, and the ability of a lion. The king of beasts. What do we call the lion? The king of beasts. Everything we're dealing with here in Revelation 5 is helping us understand Jesus Christ is king with a capital K. He is king of kings. And so the reference is to his royal line through the tribe of Judah. The reference is to his royal line through the family of David. He is the fulfillment. We don't have time to go there tonight and we'll need to. But in 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 7, where God is promising to build David a house and keep a son on his throne forever. Solomon was not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Jesus Christ is. And so then, very interesting, if you trace the two genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of them runs the genealogy back through Solomon, David's son. The other one runs it back through his son, Nathan. Either way, God brings us and shows us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to David that, that a root of David would be given. Uh, he is, he's not only the root of David, he's also called the branch, capital B, the branch. He is the root of David, meaning he is the origin of King David, and he's the offspring of David. We dealt with that last week. But all of this, dealing with this pedigree, if you're going to be king, you become king by be, having the right pedigree. I can go to England and say I have a right to the throne and they will laugh me out of town because when they start studying my DNA, they're going to say, man, you, you, do, you belong in the pound. You are not of royal blood. <laughs> right? It's true. You have to have the right bloodline to be king and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises given of what man would be raised up by God to be king. Uh, Jeremiah, finally, chapter 23, one last reference to him in his relation to the family of David. Jeremiah chapter 23. And by the way, the, the genealogy, sometimes we get bored with the genealogies, but they are in our Bible on purpose and are just as inspired and preserved as every other part of the Bible. Amen? Uh, there's a lot to be learned from them if we'll take the time to study them. But the genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ are very intentional and very specific to establish that he is man, that he is also God, but also to establish his royal lineage through his pedigree and his attachment to the tribe of Judah and specifically through the line of David. Gen uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. You've probably heard Jehovah Sitkanu. That's the Lord our righteousness that's mentioned right there in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. He is the, according to Revelation 5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That deals with his pedigree. Verse 5 also deals with his prevailing. The Bible says he has, that he hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. He's the one that has the right credentials to take what God has sealed up in that book for his dealings with earth and with man. And Jesus Christ is the one qualified to open those seals. That word prevail means exactly what you think it does. It means to subdue, to conquer, to overcome, to prevail or get the victory. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16? He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. I believe it's verse 33. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's the only one that can say that. He has prevailed to open the book. He is thoroughly qualified to govern this earth. Amen. In fact, he's thoroughly qualified not only to govern this earth, but everything under it and everything above it. 
is what the Bible says. All things have been put under him. He is, he is to have preeminence in all things. So that deals with his pedigree. Verse 5, his prevailing to open the book in the book. Verse 6 deals with his purity. It says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst uh, of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a, a lamb. What, what irony the Holy Spirit of God gives us and how this text is written. We understand that a lion and a lamb are complete opposites. The, the, the lion is known for his fierceness, for his strength, for his power, for his ability to destroy. A lamb is known for its innocence, for its weakness, for its vulnerability. And yet he's both. In one verse, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in the next verse, he's the lamb. It's the entire picture of the cross and the crown. Before he was the lion, he was first the lamb. He came as the lamb of God. And his being laid down as a sacrificial lamb is what qualifies him to be the lion. Amen. He came first as the lamb. He took upon him the form of a servant, was obedient unto death, was laid down like every lamb in the Old Testament. Every lamb sacrificed from Abel's all the way through all the Levitical sacrifices. Every lamb laid on every altar was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he well, as a lamb, or as an ox is led to the slaughter, he openeth not his mouth. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he went and kept his mouth closed and allowed himself to be sacrificed for our sins. And it's connecting with us. Jesus, we're not talking about two different people here. It's not as though God sent one Savior to die and raised up a sovereign to rule. He's one and the same. The lamb that was slain is the lion that has prevailed. Amen. And so we have this portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, God has a way, for lack of a better saying, with, it, with messing with our minds. It's hard to fathom the same person being a lion and a lamb. But John tells us this in John chapter 1. He is full of grace and truth. Find a human being that's full of grace and truth. We get a lot of grace in us, a lot of truth in us. The only way to be filled with grace and truth is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We seem to tend one way or the other, but Christ is all. He is full of grace. He's full of truth. There's no conflict in the two. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And so we see the emphasis in verse 6 really in referring to him as the lamb. The first thing we would think about in relation to him being the lamb is his purity. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold received by vain conversation, uh, by tradition, by vain conversation of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, and what it goes on to say, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Let me read it. I've missed some words there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Again, the Bible says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so we mention his purity here because we are reminded that as the Lamb of God, the emphasis there is His purity, His holiness, His spotlessness. He is the only one qualified to take away our sins, and He's the only one qualified to govern our lives. I said it recently. I don't remember if it was last Thursday night or in a message on Sunday morning. I don't remember, but it's, it's the same idea. Why in the world would we trust the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with our eternity to deal with the forgiveness of our sins, the most important thing you settle is where you're going to spend eternity. We know that. 
You can live 25 years on this earth and die, or you can live 105 years on this earth and die, but 105 years compared to eternity isn't that much different than 25 compared to eternity. We will trust Jesus Christ with what's going to happen to us when we die, but we have the hardest time trusting him with what's going to happen to us in the next 35 minutes. We have the, we'll say, I trust the Lord as my Savior. So meaning, I realize only Jesus Christ is qualified to make me righteous before God. But I don't know that I'm confident he's qualified to spend my life on earth. And that's what it boils down to. To lose your life means I refuse to decide how my life will be lived. I refuse. I will not make that decision. I will let the Lord make that for me. I will let him determine the kind of person I'm going to marry. I will let him determine the things I will involve myself in. I will let him determine what is right as far as influences in my life. I will let, that, you know what that is? That is him governing. And here he's the king, is he not? Now, if he was the lamb that was slain, the pure, the only one qualified to deal with the sins of man, and he is. The Bible tells us he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. We know that Jesus Christ is the only spotless sacrifice in all of humanity that could be found. But remember, we're led to him as the lamb first by being reminded he's the lion, the only one qualified to govern for God. May I say to you, the sooner you and I understand we are not qualified to govern our lives, the better. You need to be fired as the manager of your life. And if you've not been fired yet, you're foolish. The pastor's not right to call anybody foolish. I'm not. That's what the Bible says. To lean to our own understanding is foolish. And tonight, you aren't fit to govern your life or anybody else's, neither am I. Amen. If, if we managed a business like we managed our lives, we'd be accused of extortion, embezzlement, because <laughs> you're not your own. You realize when I spend my life my way, I'm an embezzler? I'm a God robber. Some say, well, 10% is God's. I got news for you. If you're saved, 100% is God's. He bought you with a price. Young person, you have no right to determine how you live your life if you're an honest young person. You know, here's the integrity of Christ, though. He'll let you. He will not force his will on you. What we're dealing with in Revelation 5 is his qualification to rule. He is the only one found worthy to open the books. Why in the world do we think he is worthy to govern for God but not worthy to govern for me? You with me tonight? He's the lamb. We understand. If you're saved tonight, we understand he is the only one qualified to deal with my sin. He is the only one that God could trust and God could, could, could accept as a sacrifice for sins. But he's also the only one qualified to govern and to rule. When we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in a practical way what that means is, Lord, I accept your authority as king and your right to rule. I accept your right to tell me what is right for you to legislate my thinking. I accept the right for you to legislate my attitude. I accept the right for you to legislate how I use my body. I accept the right for you to legislate and determine where I should live and how I should look and how I should speak because you are not only the lion and the, the, the lamb, but you're the lion. He's both. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's king because he was first our sacrifice. May I say this? Once we get a hold of what he's done for us as a lamb, we have no problem receiving him and reverencing him as the lion. Amen? Paul said this, the love of Christ constraineth us. 
For we thus judge that if one died for all, that's the lamb, then we're all dead. Then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. Meaning, I will submit to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah because I know he's the lamb that was slain. The four and twenty elders got it. The beast understood it. John understands it here. Oh, that we might understand it. The changing and tipping point in your Christian life is when you truly grasp by faith what Jesus Christ did for you as the sinless Lamb of God. And when that happens, when I was talking to my friend yesterday, I said, you know what? We were talking about he had a concern, a loved one he's concerned for. I said, the, the change for me, and I said, and it was the beginning, not the end of a thing. But the change for me, I was kicking back at how I was going to live my life. How I was going to live my life. And when the Lord pinned me down with, are you going to hell when you die? It was a hard question to answer. Because I had to answer on what did I deserve versus what I knew was true. I knew based on my conduct, if I were the Lord, that's where I would be going. But he promised to keep me because I would trusted him and I did trust him. I'd never come to the place where I didn't believe Christ was the Savior, that I didn't believe his word. I just didn't want him being the lion of the tribe of Judah in my life. I reserved that right for me. And the question was, and you've heard me tell this so many times, but as I discussed this with my friend yesterday, I said, you know, there was a wrestling over how I was going to live my life until the Lord brought me down to the point of, are you saved or not? And based on the word of God, I had to say, I am. Because I, I have believed and I do believe on you. Then it was, well, what did I do to you to deserve to be ignored, dismissed, and not obeyed? I've still never found any answer other than nothing. Anything less than wholehearted obedience to him was fraud. And it's still true tonight for me, for you. It was this have to do this message. Everything, everything. He, we must understand he's the only one qualified to lay his life down on the cross and pay for our sins. But he's also the only one, if he's, if he's qualified to govern the universe, do you think he's qualified to govern your four, you know, your, 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 uh, your eight decades on earth? Or maybe he'll give you less than that or more than that. Amen? He's qualified and he's worthy of that. His pedigree is prevailing, his purity. Took a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's, it's, it's the context of where we're at. He's king, amen? We should acknowledge him as such. His purity, his purchase, verse 6 again, as the lamb, he not only speaks of his purity, but the price that was paid for our salvation. Let's be reminded of that Revelation chapter 1. It's already been mentioned as the lamb. We can't think of the lamb without thinking of the Passover lamb and the blood that was shed. I'll be honest with you. I'm 100% sure I have far too, I'm certain of this, and I want this to increase, and I pray about it. I'm certain I have far too little appreciation for what Christ did for me when he died on the cross. I'm sure I don't appreciate it like I should. But if I do stop and meditate on what he actually went through, I cannot fathom it. I cannot fathom what he experienced in order for us to have forgiveness of our sins. If you listen to and read his prayer in the garden, he had a grasp of what he was about to go through. People talk about hell on earth. That If you want to describe that, that's what he went through. And people say, oh, I'd just rather die and go to hell. They have no idea what they're saying. They say, I'm experiencing my hell on earth. You have no clue what you're saying. What Christ tasted on the cross, none of us could even approach to. 
let alone pick up the cup and consider it. And when we, when we understand what it costs for him for us to have our sins forgiven, then all that can be returned is gratitude, appreciation, submission, obedience, not because we are forced by his mere power, but by his goodness. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we're talking about his purchase here, the price of our redemption. The Bible says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's one thing that Christ did this. I hear disrespectful people say, what kind of dad would make his son do that? They don't understand the way the Lord works. God the Father was willing. God the Son was equally willing. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down. That's what amazes me about what he did on Calvary. He did it on purpose. While we were yet sinners, I wouldn't die for this world. I don't even want to live for it, let alone die for it. Amen? This wretched, sinful, ungrateful, filthy world. Why would you die for it? How many would you go die to save a bunch of cockroaches or a bunch of lice? But he did. Hey, he did. We are parasites. We'll take everything from God and give nothing back. And he came and he died for us. It ought, to just, it ought to just fill our hearts with gratitude, make our hearts tender toward him that he would pay the price as the pure, sinless son of God. That's what it means. It refers to him, I saw a lamb. That entails all of that. That ought to stir our minds to think of his purity and the price he paid uh, and for our purchase, for our redemption. Uh, we know that we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. So it speaks both of his purity and his purchase to the price he paid with his shed blood. That's letter D. Letter E here under this worthy sovereign. We see his pedigree and that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, his prevailing, his purity, his purchase when he's referred to as the lamb, verses 6 and 7, his power. Notice this lamb though. This is not a lamb, this is a, a lamb that had been slain, but then it describes him this way. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. What a, an odd description. I've never seen a lamb with seven horns except right here. Why seven horns? It's perfect, complete. Seven is the number of perfection or completion throughout the Scripture. Uh, seven days in a week we understand. And over and over we find that as a, as a number of perfection. The, the horns always speak of power. There were horns on the altar, four horns on the altar, on that equidistant uh, brazen altar, and each horn, it symbolized the power of sin. But on the lamb, there's seven horns, symbolizing his power in overcoming sin, his power in overcoming Satan. Uh, you find beasts, the, the beast there that symbolizes Alexander the Great and Daniel, that goat had four horns representing Four, uh, four leaders that would come out from Alexander the Great and divide off into four little kingdoms and so forth. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ symbolized with seven horns. That horn is always, again, a picture of power. When you see a ram with those big curled horns, uh, uh, you see a big horned sheep and he's got those big uh, horns. It is a symbol of his power and his might. Our Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as having seven horns. This is reminding us why he has prevailed to open the book. He has power. He is conquered. He has the keys of death and hell in his hand because he went and got it. Amen? We must, we must remember tonight, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Christ is more powerful than sin. He is more powerful than Satan. He is more powerful than the pull of this world. He is more powerful than death itself. And we must know that is, again, it's not some false hope. It's a reality. And so this picture of him with seven horns is to tell us of his perfect power. It's speaking of his omnipotence. He's Lord and he's God. And then, of course, he has seven eyes. This lamb has seven eyes, which the Bible says are the seven spirits of God. Now, remember what we said about those seven spirits. God is not telling us that there are seven different Holy Spirits, but the Holy Spirit is, is perfect. You'll find the Holy Spirit in every dispensation of man at work. He was active in creation. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. The idea that there's seven means there's nowhere that you can hide from the eyes of God. His Spirit is, is it's how God sees what's going on. There's no period of time. You realize the dark ages is not dealing with a period of time where God couldn't see man. It's dealing with a period of time in human history where man couldn't clearly see God. That was the dark ages. In God, the world has never gone dark to God. God. His eyes are in every place. And the Lord Jesus Christ, it tells us of the seven horns, that's his omnipotence, his is being all-powerful, seven eyes, deals with his omniscience. He is the Spirit of God. He had the Spirit of God without measure. We have to be filled. We have to be filled again. We have to be filled again. Not Jesus Christ. He had the Spirit of God in him without measure because he's God in the flesh and he is, his eyes are in every place. So this ram or this lamb, though he was slain, yet we're knowing now, but this lamb is no longer slain in weakness. He's living with power. And his eyes are in every place. He has omniscience and omnipotence. And by the Spirit of God is present with us. And so uh, we see his power and with his eyes it's dealing with his perception. And then we come down to verse 7. The Bible says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. He had no problem taking the book. He knew he had the power to execute what was written therein. And everything that's going to follow Remember who took the book. He's the one that's going to be opening the seals. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that has the power to do that. He procures the book. And then, of course, in verse 8, and this will bring us into where we are next week and our final point on the worshipful song. But in verse 8, it said, When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. Somebody says, Why in the world do we talk about harps in heaven? Well, the elders had harps. That's what the Bible says. They had harps. I don't think they were juice harps. Anybody know what a juice harp is? No, I think those things belong in last week's garbage. And it's one of those little things you put in your mouth. If you never listen to bluegrass music, you've heard it back there somewhere. Somebody twanging away on that thing. No, no, these are golden harps, okay? Uh, and they had taken the book, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. Now these, these bowls, these containers full of odors. What are these odors? which are the prayers of saints. Uh, this I find interesting. I look forward to saying something about it as we get more into this next week. And then you'll find the rest of the chapter is praise to the Lamb. Uh, they, there, is, there is worship yet again by the 4 and 20 elders. And we'll get into that song that they sing. But these, these vials full of the prayers of saints, you know, we are supposed to be petitioning the Lord for His return. You find John himself saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, this is a sad indictment, something we need to step back. And it's not just to make, the statement's not made just make us have some kind of a bad feeling, but to cause us to consider where we're at in our thinking. 
How many times are we praying more just for life here to go the way we want it to? And there's nothing wrong with praying for the things we need in this life. Don't misunderstand. We are told to pray for our daily bread. Amen? But prior to that, our longing should be for the Lamb to be in His rightful place as it relates to earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. You know when that takes place? When He implements the authority that He has by practical rule on this earth. We read of it in Revelation 19. And then we ought to be longing for the day when we're not trying to make the world some kind of a better place, but realizing what we need is Christ to establish His kingdom on this earth. Do you realize the disciples were hungry for that when the Lord ascended back to heaven? And He said, it's not time, not time. But today, we're often just hungry for, I just want to be comfortable while I'm here. That's not really what God put in our hearts. That comes from our flesh, but it doesn't come from God. We ought to be longing for the return of our Savior. May I say this? Then here's a good starting point. Say, I'm not. Then let's be honest with God. Say, Lord, I'll be honest with you. I don't really look forward to your coming. Well, if we don't, let's just be honest. But I find this. I ask the Lord, would you please teach me to love your appearing? That's one of my prayer requests. You know why I pray that? Because I don't love it like I should. I, I, I get to where I like this life. I, I preach what I have to deal with. <laughs> The fact of the matter is we ought to love his appearing. We ought to say, I am looking forward to that day when I get to be before the throne. When, when all the sin that's going on is finally dealt with and when Christ has his rightful place ruling what belongs to him. He's very patient, long-suffering, and I'm glad he is. But the fact of the matter is we, ought to long, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, not just an earth that I can have enjoyment in a little while while I'm here. I believe this. I don't believe we should want persecution, but one of the fruits of persecution is it has a way of dealing with our love for this world. I believe persecuted Christians today are hungry for Christ's return. And many times us spoiled Americans are not so much. May God help us. I, I believe, I believe this, we can be blessed with the earthly things we're blessed with and still be right with God and have a love for His appearing. But it's going to take more faith on our parts. Amen? To see things the way God sees it. May God help us and tonight, would you just would you consider a couple of things? Number one, do I love His appearing like I should? Am I living day by day looking forward to the day that Christ comes and establishes His kingdom? And then one day, following that establishment of the kingdom on this earth, a new heaven, a new earth. And if I don't love His appearing, would well, I be honest enough to take that to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I don't love Your appearing like I should. I don't thank You for the fact and the truth of it. I don't anticipate it. It's not my blessed hope. <laughs> my blessed hope is more money or... Or this, and don't misunderstand me. Enjoy the blessings of God. So please don't misunderstand. Let's be thankful for things He gives here. So that would be number one. Number two. So let's let's ask the Lord to give us a true measure of our love for His appearing. Number two, ask the Lord to help you see how much do I genuinely praise Him? How much am I speaking about Jesus Christ the way these elders speak about Jesus Christ? Christ is worthy of of anything that I can give Him. That's really what's outlined here. He's worthy of glory honor, power. He is worthy. Uh, you know, how many of you have ever worked for a bad company? You've worked for a bad employer. Anybody? How many have a hard time going to work for that person? Absolutely. And then how many ever, out of that, you get hired by a good employer and you feel like they are deserving of 110% for me because they treat me so well, I don't want to disappoint them. If we can do that for earthly things, 
why in the world can we not give our Lord and Savior 110%? Amen? Amen. Next week we get into that song and, uh, that is sung there around the throne. What an instruction we can get on the kind of singing we need to be accustomed to doing because it's the kind of singing that's going to be done in heaven. All right, let's pray. God spoke to you.